Hello and welcome to the Danielle Newnham podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today's guest is Jay Metcalf, co-founder of Wired and founder of Neolife. In 1993, Jane and Louis Rosotto founded Wired, leading the charge in informing, educating and exciting the world about the digital revolution, a term that Lewis had coined. And 25 years later, Jane is doing it all over again with Neolife and what she calls the Neobiological Revolution. Neolife is a digital media and events company set up to explore the rapid developments at the intersection of tech and biology and how its marriage will shape the future of our species. A serial entrepreneur, innovator and investor, Jane is also president of Wide Ventures, author of Neolife, 25 Visions for the Future of Our Species, and she also started a premium chocolate brand, which was acquired in 2018. In this conversation, we talk about feeling like a misfit, the genesis of one of the most important publications of our time, and how it is inevitable that we will all become cyborgs. Here is my conversation with the wonder that is Jane Metcalf. Jane, I am so honoured to have you on the podcast today. I start with all my interviews. I ask people about their childhoods because I think it really does impact your career and life trajectory. So I wanted to ask you, what were you like growing up and what were some experiences that shaped you? I grew up in Kentucky and, you know, I think I I could branch from that statement off in so many different directions. Mm -hmm. I think what's important to understand about Kentucky is that it sits in the Ohio River Valley, and the Ohio River was quite polluted when I was growing up. And the environment is quite hot and sticky in the summertime. And I remember I was always a tomboy. I was always outside. Just whatever was going on, I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be in nature, in the trees, in the grass, playing, exploring, whatever it was. And I was playing tennis every summer, teaching tennis, and it would be so hot. There would be, I would just sweat, just dripping off of me. And I would go indoors and listen to, you know, the TV or the radio or the, and of course, feel the air conditioning. And they would be telling people not to go outdoors. It was so hot and so polluted when I was growing up and so humid that they literally told people to stay indoors. And, you know, that really had an impact on me because I could not imagine a life indoors. And you know, I had some trauma um, in my family and it, um, whenever things were not going well in the house, you know, I would escape outdoors and I found this just incredible peace and grounding and, you know, sense of like self and purpose and creativity and awareness and all of those things. And I moved away from Kentucky and went to college, moved to Europe, ended up starting Wired Magazine. And you know, my life became so much in my head. And I realized that, you know, that's, that's not the path to happiness for me. And that is really out of balance. And so I sit at my desk looking into a canyon full of trees now. And I think about mycelium networks communicating, you know, the fungi communicating with the plants. And I think about synthetic biology and I think about engineering human biology And I think about nature as this incredibly powerful force that we need to harness, not challenge, not tame, but live in partnership with. And so, you know, I think back, I've had a very 
peripatetic life and I've been involved in many very different things. But when I think back on it, I realize that the, the thread that keeps me healthy and sane and grounded is a connection to nature. And I think that started, you know, playing in the creeks in Kentucky. That's so interesting because you know what? It wasn't until COVID hit that I could see the importance of nature. And I remember everyone talking about it on Twitter and sharing their photos of their walks. It was like it was some kind of foreign entity that we hadn't <laughs> totally appreciated before. I completely right. agree. Yeah. And the, the Silicon Valley in particular was very anti-body mm. in many ways. You know, it was sort of, I, I hate to, you know, stereotype, but the young kid you know, who sat, the pasty faced kid, you know, who sat pounding Red Bulls and, and eating pizzas and, and coding all night, you know, she and he were not working out, were not ever, you know, seeing the light of day in many cases. And so I think it's really changed. It's funny, you know, you look at Jeff Bezos, actually, you know, and he could have been one of those, although he was never fat, he was always skinny, but, you know, he sort of exemplified that. And, and I think now people are realizing that you're longevity, your cognitive performance, anything you want to do over a sustained period of time depends on you embracing your embodiment and your embodiment, not only in your own body, but your body in nature as well. A hundred percent agree. You touched there on uh, Wired magazine and it would be remiss of me not to bring it up during this chat. So <laughs> I know it was a, a long time for you, but obviously it was so monumental. I've heard you describe yourself and your partner, Lewis, as being misfits. And I think that's partly because you were living in Amsterdam as Americans, but how did Wired come to be? I think that the misfit thing really is kind of interesting. Had we pursued a more traditional life slash career path, we might not have made Wired. On the other hand, we wouldn't have made Wired if we weren't who we just inherently were. And, you know, Lewis is inherently a contrarian. And so if everyone wants to zig, he wants to zag. Mm -hmm. Just to see what happens, just because conventional wisdom is the thing that makes him scream loudest and, and longest. And I always felt like I didn't really embrace the establishment. I don't like following rules. I don't like completing assignments as they're supposed to be. I think we find it hard to fit in. And one of the things that I discovered is a lot of people feel that way, like a much larger percentage than I would have imagined. And something like Wired gave them permission to be as chaotic and adventurous and quirky and neuroatypical and iconoclastic or whatever it is that they could possibly be. And so that was very exciting. But when we went around talking to the computer magazine publishers, I mean, they, they laughed at us. They were like, you must think we're jerks. If you think your magazine's going to work, you know, everything in your business plan is the exact opposite of what we do. People would laugh at us. They'd throw us out of their offices. I mean, I, I couldn't believe the reaction. And when, of course, we went to the consumer magazine publishers, and they just have no idea what we're talking about, you know, and they were like, hey, we would have loved to get computer advertising in our magazines. What makes you think you're going to get consumer advertising in your magazine? So yeah, it really does, I think, depend on having an idea and believing in it and executing on it. Because I think these days, doing the thing that's expected of you is perhaps the least likely road to success. It's like, you've got to do things to make you different. And I think that's what Wired represented was, what is another way of thinking about this? Whenever I've read interviews where you've de described yourself as feeling different and a misfit, I think about all the people that I've interviewed who who felt similar for various different reasons. Sometimes they, they were the minority in their town. Sometimes they were immigrants. Sometimes they just didn't feel like 
everyone understood. Even Elon Musk has said many times that he had this kind of out there ideas. He was reading a lot of science fiction and he followed his heart that way. And people would be like, oh my God, he's absolutely cuckoo. You know, there's something wrong with him. <laughs> and now look, and I think the same with Wired, you're talking about all those publishers that are saying that's never going to work. Well, you know, who's had the last laugh there? Because obviously there's an industry that's dying and, and still refusing to adapt to modern times. So, I mean, it definitely was an absolute incredible legacy. Wired was there when, when most other publications weren't for a huge population of people that were interested in what's next. So mm-hmm. I think what a legacy to have. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. I actually reached out because I'm, I'm quite a fan of asking people who you may know, either what the person was like or a question that I couldn't possibly know and should ask. And I, I didn't quite get that from Kevin Kelly. I think he's a bit of a contrarian, but I did hmm. reach out to him and the comment he made, I thought was a nice thing for you to hear. And he just said that one little known fact is that I believe it was Jane who came up with the name Wired. And he said <laughs> that without that branding, the magazine would have never worked and my life would be very different. So I thought it was very, very lovely, wasn't it? Uh, oh, so did I you see... Yeah, he's, I mean, did you read yesterday? He's obviously just turned 70 and he actually has posted 103 pieces of advice that he wished he'd learned earlier. And they're fantastic. He's amazing. Yeah, he is. He's actually, he's quite underrated, I think, because not everyone knows who he is. He's not in the kind of same sphere as Stuart Brand, who like everyone recognizes him. And yet he's obviously been an influential person over the years. Yes, I completely agree. Kevin is a complete original. And I think he's actually quite different from Stuart, Mm. um, which I, I, I agree with you. I think very few people know that. I would say that Stuart and Kevin's reputations throughout the, let's say, 90s and aughts were probably roughly equal. But with the resurgence of interest in psychedelics Mm. and climate change, I think those two factors have made people want to go back to somebody like Stuart, whose vision of the whole Earth, initially with that view of Earth from space image, which he so famously provoked NASA to release, and his role in with the Merry Pranksters and the whole psychedelic movement and how it tied in with Silicon Valley. I think that has made Stuart rise beyond the group of intellectuals and environmentalists and tech people who maybe knew him before to a broader audience. Mm-hmm. But Kevin, Kevin is an extraordinarily creative person and a true original, and he's lived his life in amazing ways. So yeah, I, I I definitely consider him Stuart's equal. But yes, his advice is so quirky and fun, and you know he's so consistent, which I really love. And like the fact that that list has expanded to 107 pieces of advice mm-hmm. just cracks me up because he's been doing it for decades. I thought it was going to be 70. I thought he, he was going right. to stick to 70, and obviously went above. But I guess that's him all over, isn't it? I was going to ask you one last question about Wired. When you look back, obviously there was a lot of predictions going on. And I know that you and your partner coined the phrase the digital revolution. When you look back, do you see it as a positive, the digital revolution, or a negative? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, yes, and I, I think it's both. And, you know, like a simple tool, like a box cutter, can be extraordinarily useful in a manufacturing environment or even for somebody buying packages from Amazon, but it can also be used as a weapon to hijack an airplane. Mm. And so I think, like any tool, there are not inherent dangers that aren't well no I can't say that but like any tool they can it can be used for good or for evil I think on the whole 
the internet has brought us together as a planet in a way no other tool could have. Climate change was going to take a whole lot longer to be a uniting force if we did not have the internet. And so I think it was a precursor to bringing us together in a way that our multilateral organizations and the United Nations, those kinds of initiatives would have taken a lot longer than where we are now. Granted, we still have a long way to go, but I think on the whole, giving you know the vast majority of the planet access to all the world's information is a good thing. Let's just stop and say, that's a good thing. And I think it has accelerated the number of people who are climbing out of poverty into a more stable life with the ability to get education and accumulate some assets and live a less desperate existence. So yes, definitely on the whole, the internet has been a positive force for change. I think there are other forces that have thwarted some of the ideals that we had about the internet, but economic self-interest and you know what happens when basically evil people get a soapbox, the ability for crime. I mean, crime is a fantastic opportunity. You know, new technology, it's sex and crime are the two things that will propel it forward initially. So we just have to keep that in mind. And, you know, like with all things, we have to make sure that we are educating ourselves about the dangers. And building those safety protocols in as we design it going forward. And when I look to other new technologies like synthetic biology, it's like we have to do the same thing. And maybe the hands-off, my internet kind of attitude that we espoused in Wired went on a little too long. And maybe, you know, I, I, I distinctly remember moving to California from Amsterdam and meeting all of these cyber libertarians and all of the tech leaders. And all the venture capitalists would say the same thing, which is just U.S. government, you do not know what we're doing over here. You know, you just stand back and let us create enormous value and it's going to be good for everyone. Trust us. And all we need is for you to loosen up the immigration for the engineers from India and China and other countries to come here, let people come here, get educated in our systems and flow into our technology companies And then that's pretty much all we need from you. Thank you very much. And I remember distinctly Ed Markey, senator from Massachusetts on the Commerce Committee, saying that the chairman of Sony was much more likely to come visit him when he was in Washington, D.C. and explain what would be in Sony's interests or how Sony sees the world than any of the tech leaders from Silicon Valley. Now, granted, this is back in the 90s and Silicon Valley tech leaders have woken up to that reality. But during the go-go years, it was just all good and it reflected well on U.S. economy and U.S. presidencies, but I think it maybe went a little too far. And some of these companies are bigger than God now. Mm. (laughs) They're they're bigger than the container of the United States. Their technology capabilities, in many cases, of course, exceed those of the U.S. government. And their war chests come with far less scrutiny and constraints than congressional spending. So I think we probably need to figure out what the role of government is sooner. And that means we've got to figure out how to build ethics into our technology development so that these are considerations from the get-go. That way you can design it right and not require as much regulation because you've already built it into your system. Absolutely. I was actually going to bring up ethics. But one thing on just what you were saying there is that I think when I watched, I think it was a congressional hearing between Mark Zuckerberg and the powers Hmm. that be in government, and it was so clear that the people that were haranguing him 
had no knowledge of even how Facebook worked, which seemed quite Uh a simple concept. And so you think sometimes, well, how can they make decisions about Bitcoin and various other things when they don't understand the technology in the first place? So I think one of the most important things is to actually get people into power who can oversee what's going on, but actually understand it as well. You know, and that's that's an issue that we have in this country as well. And you interject that China has done exactly that. Mm. The Chinese government is full of scientists and engineers. And I think that gives them an incredible advantage Mm. over us. I agree with you. You know, we published John Perry Barlow's essay, The Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, where he basically said, you guys are in no position to regulate us because you have no idea what we're doing. Mm. And I think it's a problem. It's clear that science and technology are what drives our our nations forward. Mm. And that lack of understanding is a huge problem. Yeah. When you just mentioned China, the first thing I thought when you said that is, haven't they banned Facebook? But maybe that's why, because they've got people that understand what's going on. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, Neolife. Tell me about Neolife, why you set it up and what your mission is. I could not help myself. I did Neolife because I literally could not stop myself from wanting to tell the stories about the world, the way it was changing in a direction that we foreshadowed with Wired, but never turned into. And it came about because, again, my my rather unusual life, after selling Wired, we got involved with a chocolate company. And that was great fun. And we were making chocolate, manufacturing chocolate on a pier in San Francisco. Like, what? how much stress could that have possibly been? That's like the happiest job ever, right? But it got me thinking about the power of nutrition. And, you know, we were coming across things like the ability of chocolate to change your mood and to focus you. And I came across these papers. The International Headache Society said that a little bit of dark chocolate could stave off migraines. And there were these cardioprotective factors. A Swedish study saying people live longer after a heart attack if they ate 50 grams of dark chocolate, 70% cacao or more per day, which by the way, is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just fascinated with that. And at the same time, getting involved in a crop, like what does it take to grow this crop? What is an organic crop? What is a fair trade crop? You know, how do you move crops from one place to another? How do you avoid things, mold and fungus and good manufacturing processes? So there's a lot of science that I was suddenly embracing and fascinated by. And people were coming to us saying they wanted to use our chocolate as a carrier for probiotics, for instance. And I was fascinated with that. And then it was like cannabis and then it was psilocybin, just none of which we did, by the way. At the time we had a you know million bar contract with Starbucks and it was like, oh, you don't mind if we just do a little flush after the psilocybin run, do you? It's like, yeah, not going to take that risk. But it did get me thinking. And then I had three octogenarians who were experiencing mental health declines as well as cognitive declines. And so I went looking into what was happening with neuroscience. And my first was, how come there aren't better diagnostics and treatments for mental health and cognitive decline? And then what does the future have in store for us? And then, as I am wont to do, how is technology going to change that? And so I started reading and and attending conferences and meeting these people who reminded me of the people we met at the beginning of Wired and throughout the Wired era, who I thought were the smartest people in the world. They had these incredibly powerful digital tools, and they were going to use it to transform education and business and entertainment and communication and finance and government and et cetera, et cetera. And literally, it was 25 years later, and I'm standing in this ballroom 
meeting these MDs and PhDs who, in addition to their you know, 10 or 15 years of specialized study in molecular biology or whatever their field was, were also hackers. You know, we're also able to whip together little programs so that they could read the data. And it was just like the most astonishing moment. And I thought, no, these are the most powerful people in the world because they're not just going to transform medicine. They're going to transform human biology and they have the tools to do that. And it was just such an eye-opening experience. And I thought, you know, as a journalist, the idea that there would be a second time in my life where I would be at the red hot center of a massive wave of change was just too big an opportunity not to seize. And that's why I started Neolife. And really our mission is to prepare the world for the changes coming, just as it was with Wired. It's what does all this mean? What is it? How does it work? How is it going to affect me? And once we get past the Am I going to live to be 150? You know, can I have children by myself? You know, can I hack my brain to be massively smarter and more productive? To the societal impact of how do we deploy these tools? How do we regulate these tools? And ultimately, how do we manage the future of our species? Talking about species, actually, my next question was, where do you think we're going? What is the future of our species and how do we get there? Which I know is an extremely, I mean, you could go <laughs> off on, on a million different tangents, but can you give me an overview? Because I think your views are fascinating. And also, I know how informed you are because you obviously put so much research into everything. And I know that you surround yourself with these brilliant scientists and technologists. So I'm curious, if someone asks you, where do you see the future of us going? What, what would you answer? So I think Danny Hillis, my dear friend, who's a genius. I mean, literally, I think he's won every genius award there is on the planet. <laughs> Built the first parallel processing supercomputer. But Danny said, what makes you think that we're the end of evolution? Why would Homo sapiens, just because we're at the top of the food chain now, doesn't mean that nothing comes after us. And, and it's like, well, the minute he said it, it's like, yeah, of course. But then you go, right. Yes. Because mm. you don't really think about it, do you? And when I discovered, I love this, the way this sounds, when I discovered CRISPR, <laughs> I mean, when I figured out, when I understood what CRISPR was and how it would affect our species, I thought this sounds like something that's going to happen. Someone is going to use CRISPR on human beings in the next five years to engineer human beings. And it was not five years later. It wasn't even two years later. It was 18 months later. This guy, Hu Zhengqiu in China, edited human embryos before they were implanted to ostensibly prevent the passage of HIV from the father to the children, which of course has far more stigma in China than it does in the United States. So, and, and you know, my experience at Wired helps me see that the tools we carry are already enhancements. Our iPhones are in digital enhancements. They're cognitive enhancement tools. And I see how embedding a chip in my brain to control a tremor, for instance, or to control depression is bringing a person from below baseline up to baseline. But in some cases, it gives them capabilities they wouldn't otherwise have. And so I think both from a biological intervention standpoint, we're going to hack our immune system. We're hacking our immune systems right now on a global basis to a technological melding with our machines. I can totally see how Homo sapiens is absolutely on track to become cyborgs, to become 
genetically engineered, digitally enhanced future humans. What's interesting is just you saying that there'll be lots of people that go, oh my God, no, that is the worst type of future we can have. But then like you were saying earlier about technology and how it can be used for good or bad, there's so many reasons why it would be good. And there's so many people that suffer now that could suffer less. There's a lot of mental health issues that arise as a part of people's lives. And if they could eradicate that, like say you carried a gene that I don't know was causing you to be an addict. And then, and I, even if that exists, I don't know, but I've, I've heard of generational trauma. And I think if we could prevent future generations having to suffer or be, be in, like you said, subpar because of us, you know, the mm-hmm. parents, then I think you'd do it, which is weird because a lot of people would even say that what I'm saying is wrong and you shouldn't play with things like that. But I think unless you've gone through something yourself, you wouldn't necessarily know you'd want to do it. COVID is such a big thing in our lives, even now, two years on. I wanted to ask you, what did you learn about science and innovation from those two years? And also, I know that you're involved in human vaccines project. Can you tell me about that as well? Yes, but can I just respond to what you just said prior to that? Because epigenetic trauma is is something that we really have no idea how to change at this point. But genetically inherited diseases, we absolutely do have an idea how to change them. And as we said at the beginning of this call, I mean, the idea that our challenges as children impact our character and our life choices, you know, as adults, I just wanted to draw your attention to the fact that mental illness is something that affects a very large percentage of our populations and that we've all been struggling with, particularly during the pandemic. But the kind of mental illness I'm talking about is the kind that can be spotted in an embryo. And today we have a larger and larger number of families choosing to freeze eggs and freeze embryos and then do a pre-implantation genetic screen of those embryos to choose the fittest ones. And if you could see a proclivity to mental illness, would you implant that embryo? And, you know, I think most parents would say no. And having grown up with mental illness in my family and seeing the impact it had on my grandmother, I could certainly understand that choice. And I would feel enormous compassion for that decision. On the other hand, you know, people who are diagnosed with mental illness are often a large percentage of our creative class. And what happens when we edit out all those people from our population? These are very complex questions, and it's very hard to understand what the right choices are. But during COVID, the depression was big, but the scientific advance was enormous. And watching the world scientists collaborate in real time was an extraordinary thing. And I think those of us who are either in the science community or science adjacent or science groupies like I am. Oh, this is it. This is really the moment when scientists will get their due. You know, they will have their moment in the sun and people will see how important the work is that they do. And there will be far more research dollars poured into the basic science research that we so desperately need in order to then create, you know, the inventions and the technologies and the companies and the medicines that will keep us safe and propel us forward. And So it was very shocking to see, even within my own family, as I was basking in the excitement and and glory of this unprecedented opportunity and success in terms of sequencing the genome of the virus and generating a vaccine for it, it was the, the most amazing thing. 
at the same time, people in my own family were saying, who are these experts? Why should we be listening to them? You know, And it's like, they don't know what they're talking about. And it's like, because we don't understand the basic process of science, which is we don't have all the answers. We're still discovering. We're still observing. We're still trying to reverse engineer and then impact things going forward. And so it's been a really interesting time to see the expectations that humans have about our grasp of the basics of biology. And it's been very eye-opening to me to see how much we don't know. And I, I have a particular perspective because the way I've spent the past six, seven years of my life, but all it takes is one trip to the doctor with an inconclusive diagnosis or an unsuccessful treatment to realize that ultimately the best person to manage your health is you, not necessarily your doctor. And that it behooves you to figure out how your biology works so that you can find the people who can help you. And I think if anything, long COVID, who's going to get it, who's not? I mean, it's like you just have to develop and cultivate an instinct about your own body and your own immune system. And I think we're going to see a lot more pathogens. I think COVID is just the beginning. And the global travel and the, the kind of one planet reality means we're going to be sharing more and more germs. And I think we have to be prepared for those. And I think we also have the opportunity to vaccinate against cancers and, and other things. And with these mRNA platforms and uh, AAV platforms and so forth, you know, there's going to be an enormous amount of innovation. And so what choices are you going to make and why and how? So I think having sources of information that the general public, the lay person can find, which are scientifically based and evidence-based and reliable is going to be really, really important. It absolutely is. And you know what? It wasn't until COVID hit that I think people started to pay more attention. We said earlier about paying more attention to nature. I think people started to pay more attention to science and realize what was possible and what was not. And also, like you said, what part we play ourselves because the people were suddenly trying to get fit. And I think my sister at the time was trying to give up smoking after decades of smoking because she thought, oh, you know, it's going to make COVID worse if she gets it. Mm. So, yeah, I think 100 percent it, it's now. But then I also think it was really short lived. As in, I remember everyone wanting to get fit. And that was like, you know how everyone goes to the gym in January and then by February right. they've stopped. So I hope we can continue on this path of, of, of learning more about ourselves and our bodies and making ourselves fitter. And, and not just because we are going to be facing all these awful diseases, like you said, but we're going to want to improve our lives and those of our children. But before I move on from this, we need to go back to talk about the Human Vaccines Project. Oh, right. Can you tell me about it and your involvement? Yes. So a friend of mine called from New York during the JP Morgan healthcare conference in San Francisco annually, and said, this group wants to connect with people doing AI and can you help them? And I was like, gosh, immunology, artificial intelligence, like, wow, okay, I'll do what I can. And I ended up meeting Ted Schenkelberg, who is the chief operating officer for the Human Vaccines Project. And he started talking about what they were doing. And I was like, this is fascinating. Talking about complex systems. The human immune system could possibly be the most complex system there is. And it's not just the system itself, but it's the way it interacts with all the other networks in the body. And then all these exogenous factors like the exosome, the exposome, what is it that there's everything in your own body and then there's everything happening in your environment, like pollution or radiation or whatever it may be. And so I've just, ever since meeting them, I've just gotten more and more fascinated. And I got to say, I am in the deep end here. I am in way over my head. And these people are incredibly patient with me. <laughs> and I'm reading everything I can about the immune system. But um, 
you know, ultimately it's an organization in transition because now that there's so many people focusing on vaccines and so much effort going into that area, it's like, where can the human vaccines project go from where it's been? And ultimately the idea is how can we understand the human immunome and ultimately understand it in a way so that we can create a baseline. So imagine if you had a baseline say today, okay, this is what my immunome looks like. And five years from now, I've had cancer treatments and chemotherapy, and now my immune system looks different. And, you know, another 10 years down the road, now I'm a little older and my immune system isn't robust as it used to be. Having that baseline would be amazing. And then ultimately being able to predict, you know, based on your exposures and the things that are happening to you in your life and in your health, this is how we predict your immune system will respond to the next pathogen or the next vaccine or, or simply aging. And so I think the possibilities are endless. And so we have taken it upon ourselves to launch a moonshot, as similar to the Human Genome Project, and it's called the Human Immunome Project. And the idea is to build a, a, a machine learning-based, artificial intelligence-based model of the human immunome. And it is one of the most thrilling things I've done in a very long time, I have to say. And we're convening world experts in immunology, in bioinformatics and computational biology, and in machine learning, artificial intelligence, in order to, to figure out what it's going to take, which is probably going to be hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in 10 years or more. But it seems like a really worthy goal. I think it absolutely is. And it's really interesting that you find yourselves in these situations because <laughs> you're literally on the edge of most revolutions. And I think that, that it takes a particular person, going back to when you said earlier about feeling different and being a misfit, I think those are exactly the type of people that find themselves in, in this situation, the ones that don't follow the rules, like you were saying, but also the ones that see things that others don't. And on that note, I wanted to ask you, there's obviously a lot that you see that others don't, but what's one thing do you think right now that you truly believe will happen in the next five to 10 years, which most people do not think will happen? I think we are going to begin the transition to a bioeconomy. We are going to see so much innovation happening in areas that require biological processes to happen. So Specifically, I'm, think, I'm thinking about synthetic biology and its ability to generate new materials, new energy sources to address you know, climate impacts by snuffling up carbon dioxide and industrial gases and converting them into things like industrial feed materials and so forth. When I talk about nature, it, it's really using our technology, using our observational powers to then clean up the planet and transition from petroleum-based manufacturing to cell-based manufacturing. I think we have the potential to transform manufacturing, agriculture, energy, transportation, medicine, and biology. And it's all happening now. And it's astonishing. Like last week and every single week I talk to entrepreneurs, you know, who are raising money to build things that will allow them to scale to make this happen. So last week, I was talking to the CEO of Mycoworks, and it's a company that is doing manufacturing with mycelium, mushrooms. And you know they've just raised, I forget what it was, $125 million 
to get a manufacturing facility set up in South Carolina where they're going to be doing fine mycelium, which Hermes is one of their best customers. I came across a story because I was investigating them. I came across a story in Vogue about this company and it's really astonishing. And so, you know, using mycelium for building materials, for fashion materials, for art, for all these other applications, and then using biological processes to eliminate or vastly reduce the amount of pesticides and herbicides we need to require less land, to require less water, to even ultimately enhance the food products, not just eliminate these inputs, but also to enhance either the nutritional value or their shelf life, or of course they could be carriers for medications or probiotics or whatever. Biological processes are the new horsepower. We have to figure out how to harness this because we have to transition away from the kind of agriculture that we're currently doing, where you cut down all the trees and destroy the polyculture and then build some monoculture, which then becomes so much more vulnerable to pests. So I think people don't understand you know, what the possibilities are, how vast a, a transformation this could be, and how hopeful they should feel about our future. Because I do think synthetic biology holds many of the answers to our most perplexing problems. I agree. And I think that's what's so great about your website. And I love your newsletter, by the way. You mentioned uh, mycelium in there. And I think that there's not enough exposure to science in general. And one thing I want to talk about was education. I've said many times on this podcast how I think traditional education is extremely outdated and, and no longer needed. But I'm curious because we've talked about nature and how important it is. And when I look back at various inventors from da Vinci, even modern day inventors, a lot of them studied nature as a way of progressing humanity and getting us to technical advancements. So I was going to ask you, what do you think we could do differently? If you and I set up a school tomorrow, what mm. were the kind of curriculum would you want, whether it's about science or, I don't know, entrepreneurship? What would you like to see change to educate the future generations? Mm. Yes. So, gosh, I would have loved to go to one of those outdoor schools. I think mm. that just would have been amazing. I think about even this, something as simple as exercising outside, it increases my tolerance for temperature change. You know, it's like if you sit indoors all the time, two degrees warmer or hotter and you're uncomfortable. But if you're sitting outside in the seasons, you're exposed to the allergens, you're exposed to the temperature change, you're going to get curious about that. Like, what is it outside that's making me sneeze? And how do I concentrate when it's too hot or too cold? I think it just exposes you to so many questions that you will then go looking to it for answers for. But I look at my children's education and I talk to my friends who are professors and it is astonishing what our current education is capable of doing. I mean, yes, we can all complain, and elite education is as broken as non-elite education. On the other hand, it is astonishing the amount of knowledge that high schoolers can graduate with right now. And looking at my own children who were exposed to every possible interactive media and video game when they were growing up, we would feed them the stuff that we thought would be interesting. So civilization was this great game that taught them history, European history, American history, they didn't have Asian or African or Latin American versions of it, but it was fascinating. 
They studied mythology through these games that they were playing. They played games like SimCity and Railroad Tycoon, where you get to either be mayor of a city or the CEO of a railroad. But it's a game. And so the consequences are that your city doesn't grow or your railroad goes bankrupt. And it just seems like a good way to get people thinking holistically in non-threatening situations. And our kids learned very early on that, that we didn't have all the answers. And when they would come to us with questions, we'd say, I don't know, let's ask Google, you know? And so very quickly they realized that they have to learn things themselves. And that sense of acquired knowledge. Okay, I have now mastered American history, and now I'm going to move on to European history, and I'm going to master that and move on to that. That's ridiculous and outdated and not how people think. But what's interesting is how you can study European history, and then within that, like what was happening technologically, and how does that connect to your science class, and how does your science class depend on what you've learned in math, and how does all of that impact how you think globally around things? I think our tools have adjusted to that. And kids are coming into college these days knowing so much more, having so many more skills than ever before. And so I think that the goal here is to not be the sage on the stage, but to be the guide on the side. I didn't make that up. The first person who said that to me was Esther Wojcicki, who is the mother of two extraordinary entrepreneurs, and who is the CEO of 23andMe, and Susan, who is the CEO of YouTube. And Esther herself is a, uh, a pioneer in education. But it taps into the whole kind of constructivist movement of education that people like Seymour Papert were working on, and Alan Kay, who was an Apple fellow. But it's the whole idea that you start with projects, and you work in groups, and you share and you collectively figure out answers. And the teacher is there to sort of guide you. And if you have questions you can't figure out or you get stuck, you know, she or he is there to sort of help move you forward. But ultimately, it's a process of discovery. And I think we have the tools now for educational system to really be that. And the other aspect of it is, so it's collaborative, it's discovery, but it's also constant. And you know, one of the things that when I got back into publishing, I was like, oh no, now I have to learn all these new programs and I am not skilled. I need an expert. And then I realized, you know, I'd hire younger people or people who are in marketing or media or whatever, and, and they'd say, Oh, I just found this new package. Let's figure out how to use it together. You know, and it was like there's constant innovation. And so you don't even need to master something because it's going to constantly be changing. So you just need to learn how to keep changing with it. So Yes, I can bemoan public education in America. I can bemoan our competitive advantages slipping and all of that. But that's kind of not necessarily how I think. I think more about, well, what, what do we have? What's working? What do we need going forward? And let's put our energies there. You're ever the optimist, which I love. And also <laughs> when you were talking about your idea of education and, and how it could be different, actually, I interviewed somebody called Josh Dunn, who's the co-founder of Synthesis. I'll send you a link after this because they're, they're 100% doing pretty much what you said. Josh Dunn set up a school with Elon Musk called mm. Ad Astra, and then it went on to become Synthesis and it's all online, but it's all about children all over the world coming together to problem solve through games. And it's so Love fascinating. This. Yeah, it's such a great idea. Anyway, I've got two more questions, which I will go through quite quickly because I'm, I'm conscious of time. But my question is, what do you wish your legacy to be? Interesting question, especially because, you know, I will probably forever be known as the co-founder with Lewis of, of Wired. 
And so I kind of feel like I've already got that. But beyond that, my big goal is to help people see how the world is changing and help them embrace that change. And for good and for bad, I want people to have critical thinking so that they can identify trustworthy sources of information. And I really want people to be open-minded so that they can change what they think. Because you may have to change what you think about genetically modified foods, because they really might offer a path to agricultural sustainability and ultimately climate sustainability. And that's a really tough one. Alice Waters, who is a famous chef here in the Bay Area, she created Chez Panisse Restaurant, was asked, how did you participate in the revolution you know, that was happening in the 60s? And she said that she felt if she could change the way people think about their food and what they eat, she could change what they think about anything else. And it's so true. It's so fundamental to who we are and what makes us happy and what sustains us. And so being open-minded to trying new things, like <laughs> we did a story recently on insect-based food and insect farming for food sources. And one of my followers was just on Twitter going, Jane Metcalf, I am not going to eat crickets. You know, it's like, don't even go there. So those would be my legacies. Embrace change and uh, be willing to change your mind. What a fantastic legacy. When I look at your career, it, there is such a natural progression and everything you're doing now will touch the lives of future generations as it has with the current generation. Last question I always ask everyone is if you could go back in time and bearing in mind your childhood, I know you touched upon trauma and the fact that you were always outside and almost escaping, which so many people that innovate do, they go into their own little worlds for various reasons. I just wondered what's one piece of advice you'd offer a younger Jane? Find your community because where you are is not where you have to stay. And your community doesn't have to be geographically based. If you're not surrounding yourself with people who inspire you, you should keep looking because your friend group are enormously important. And I think you should be with people who inspire you. Jane, I appreciate A, all that you've done, B, all that you're doing. And it's just been such a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Danielle. Thank you so much for your interest and for your very kind remarks. I'm, I'm beaming over here now. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jane Metcalf. If you enjoyed it, please do share the episode with someone who you think will enjoy it too. And thank you to Jane for her time. This was a wide-ranging conversation which I thoroughly enjoyed and I learned a lot from. Jane is someone who spearheaded our understanding and our excitement about the digital revolution with Wired. And so it seems a natural progression that she will lead us through the neo-biological one. And I, for one, am extremely excited about it. In this interview, Jane and I discuss how Lewis and Jane felt like misfits which reminds me of this great quote from an Apple advert. Here it goes. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, but the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward and while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do.